From Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. At the International Court of Justice at The Hague, South Africa presents a damning case against Israel for committing genocide against Palestinians in Gaza. What is happening in Gaza now is not correctly framed as a simple conflict between two parties. It entails instead destructive acts perpetrated by an occupying power, Israel, that has subjected the Palestinian people to an oppressive and prolonged violation of their rights to self-determination for more than half a century. And descendants of a desecrated African-American cemetery in Maryland get their day before the state's Supreme Court. Now here we are going into the Supreme Court to represent our ancestors and to plead their case before this court. We are the first descendant group to make it as far as the state Supreme Court. All that and more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. First, some headlines. An emergency rally was held outside the White House on Thursday night to protest the United States and the UK bombing of Yemen. Yemen's Ansar Allah, or Houthi movement, which governs in 80% of the country, is successfully disrupting ships bound for Israel in the Red Sea as a response to Israel's genocide in Gaza. The U.S.-U.K. strikes reportedly hit several cities in Yemen. After the bombing, Reuters reported explosions at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq. Trita Parsi, executive vice president of the Quincy Institute, was one of several analysts posting comments saying that the attack by the U.S. and U.K. would only increase the chance of a dangerous widening of war in the region. Parsi wrote that if the objective is to stop disruption of trade, quote, a ceasefire in Gaza is far more likely to succeed. The Houthis have declared that they will stop if Israel stops, end quote, he said. Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan spoke Thursday on the House floor in support of South Africa's case before the International Court of Justice, accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. She also submitted South Africa's 84-page application to the World Court into the official congressional record and read from page 59 of the report detailing the stated intention by Israeli officials to commit genocide. There is simply time to save lives, to stop the Israeli government from carrying out the genocide in Gaza. This body and the Biden administration are complicit in this genocide. Congress must stop funding the genocide of the Palestinian people with our American tax dollars. And finally, the National March on Washington for Gaza is happening Saturday, January 13th at 1 p.m. The new location for the stage is Freedom Plaza, 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue in Northwest D.C. Demands include an immediate and permanent ceasefire in Gaza, stop the unconditional U.S. funding of Israel's genocide against Gaza and the occupation of Palestine, and three, hold Israel accountable for war crimes committed against the Palestinian people and their continuous violations of international law. The January 13th mass mobilization is initiated by the American Muslim Task Force for Palestine, which includes many national Muslim American organizations. The Answer Coalition is national partner for this mobilization and is organizing buses from many cities. That's January 13th, 1 p.m. 
The new location is Freedom Plaza, 14th and Pennsylvania Avenue. For more information, go to answercoalition.org. And those are headlines and happenings. Stay with us. Israel is committing genocide in Gaza with an unprecedented level of death, destruction, and stated intent, lawyers told the International Court of Justice at The Hague on Thursday. A panel of eight represented the Republic of South Africa in its case accusing Israel of genocide. While a finding of genocide could take months, South Africa's case is requesting urgent provisional measures that would require the court ordering a ceasefire and an end to Israel's bombing of Gaza. In this excerpt of the opening presentation, we begin with Visamuzi Madansela, followed by South Africa's Justice Minister, Ronald Lamola. Madam President, distinguished members of the court, it is an honor and a privilege for me to appear before you today on behalf of the Republic of South Africa. I wish to express my gratitude to the court for convening this hearing on the earliest possible date to entertain South Africa's request for the indication of provisional measures in this matter. In our application, South Africa has recognized the ongoing Nakba of the Palestinian people through Israel's colonization since 1948, which has systematically and forcibly dispossessed, displaced, and fragmented the Palestinian people, deliberately denying them their internationally recognized inalienable right to self-determination and their internationally recognized right of return as refugees to their towns and villages in what is now the State of Israel. We are also particularly mindful of Israel's institutionalized regime of discriminatory laws, policies and practices designed and maintained to establish domination, subjecting the Palestinian people to apartheid on both sides of the Green Line. Decades-long impunity for widespread and systematic human rights violations has emboldened Israel in its recurrence and intensification of international crimes in Palestine. At the outset, South Africa acknowledges that the genocidal acts and omissions by the State of Israel inevitably form part of a continuum of illegal acts perpetrated against the people, Palestinian people since 1948. The application places Israel's genocidal acts and omissions within the broader context of Israel's 75-year apartheid, 56-year occupation, and 16-year siege imposed on the Gaza Strip, a siege which itself has been described by the director of UNRWA Affairs in Gaza as a silent killer of people. As the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination warned on December 21st, hate speech and dehumanizing discourse
targeted at Palestinians is raising severe concerns regarding Israel and other states' parties' obligation to prevent crimes against humanity and genocide in the Gaza Strip. This warning has been followed by a succession of warnings, including by 37 United Nations uh, Special Rapporteurs of the failure of the international system to mobilize to prevent genocide in Gaza. Today, we are joined in court by representatives of the Palestinian state, the Palestinians who work in the fields of human rights, including residents of Gaza, who were in Gaza just a few days ago. They are some of the lucky ones who managed to get out of Gaza. Their future and the future of their fellow Palestinians who are still in Gaza depend on the decision this court will make on this matter. With the leave of the court, I now call upon His Excellency, Mr. Ronald Lamola, Minister of Justice of the Republic of South Africa, to make South Africa's substantive opening remarks. I thank the agent of South Africa for his statement, and I now invite the Minister of Justice and Correctional Services for the Republic of South Africa, His Excellency, Mr. Ronald Lamola, to take the floor. You have the floor, Excellency. Thank you, Madam President and distinguished members of the court, it is an honor for me to stand here in front of you on behalf of the Republic of South Africa on this exceptional case. In extending our hands across the miles to the people of Palestine, we do so in full knowledge that we are part of a humanity that is at one. These were the words of our founding president, Nelson Mandela. This is the spirit in which South Africa acceded to the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Crime of Genocide in 1998. This is the spirit in which we approach this court as a contracting party to the Convention. This is a commitment we owe to the people of Palestine and Israelis alike. As previously mentioned, the violence and the destruction in Palestine and Israel did not begin on the 7th of October 2023. The Palestinians have experienced systematic oppression and violence for the last 76 years. On 6 October 2023 and every day since October the 7th, 2023. In the Gaza Strip, at least since 2004, Israel continues to exercise control over the airspace, territorial waters, land crossing, water, electricity, and civilian infrastructure, as well as over key government functions. Entry and exit by air and sea to Gaza is strictly prohibited, with Israel operating the only two crossing points. Given that continuing effective control by Israel and over the territory of Gaza, Israel is still considered by international community to be under belligerent occupation by Israel. South Africa unequivocally condemned the targeting of civilians by Hamas and other Palestinian armed groups and the taking of hostages on the 7th of October 2023. And has again expressly recorded this condemnation, mostly recently in its not verbal to Israel on the 21st of, November, of December 2023. That said, no armed attack on a state territory 
no matter how serious, even an attack involving atrocity crimes, can provide any justification for or defense to breaches to the Convention, whether as a matter of law or morality. Israel's response to the 7th of October 2023 attack has crossed this line and give rise to the breaches of the Convention. Faced with such evidence and our duty to do what we can do to prevent genocide, as contained in Article 1 of the Convention, the South African government initiated this case. South Africa welcomes the fact that Israel has engaged with the case in order to have the matter resolved by the court. After careful and objective consideration of the facts and submission put before it, as the parties to the Convention have intended, this hearing is concerned with South Africa's request to the court for the indication of provisional measures and will necessarily have a narrow and particular focus. I invoke the words of Martin Luther King when he said, the arch of the moral of the universe is long, always bending towards justice. Belini Negrali of Ireland spoke on the urgency of provisional measures. Madam President, members of the court, there is an urgent need for provisional measures to protect Palestinians in Gaza from the irreparable prejudice caused by Israel's violations of the Genocide Convention. The United Nations Secretary-General and its chiefs describe the situation in Gaza variously as a crisis of humanity, a living hell, a bloodbath, a situation of utter deepening and unmatched horror where an entire population is besieged and under attack, denied access to the essentials for survival on a massive scale. As the United Nations Under Secretary General for Humanitarian Affairs stated last Friday, and I quote, Gaza has become a place of death and despair. Families are sleeping in the open as temperatures plummet. Areas where civilians were told to relocate for their safety have come under relentless attack, bombardment. Medical facilities are under relentless attack. The few hospitals that are partially functional are overwhelmed with trauma cases, critically short of all supplies, and inundated by desperate people seeking safety. A public health disaster is unfolding. Infectious diseases are spreading in overcrowded shelters as sewers spill over. Some 180 women are giving birth daily amidst this chaos. People are facing the highest levels of food insecurity ever recorded. Famine is around the corner. For children in particular, the last 12 weeks have been traumatic. No food, no water, no school, nothing but the terrifying sounds of war day in and day out. Gaza has simply become uninhabitable. Its people are witnessing daily threats to their very existence while the world watches on. End quote. The court has heard of the horrific death toll and of the more than 7,000 Palestinian men, women and children reported missing, presumed dead, 
or dying slow, excruciating deaths trapped under the rubble. Reports of field executions and torture and ill-treatment are mounting, as are images of decomposing bodies of Palestinian men, women and children left unburied where they were killed, some being picked upon by animals. It is becoming ever clearer that huge swathes of Gaza, entire towns, villages, refugee camps, are being wiped from the map. As you have heard, but it bears repeating, according to the World Food Programme, four out of five people in the world in famine or a catastrophic type of hunger are in Gaza right now. Indeed, experts warn that deaths from starvation and disease risk significantly outstripping deaths from bombings. The daily statistics stand as clear evidence of the urgency and of the irreparable prejudice. On the basis of the current figures, on average, 247 Palestinians are being killed and are at risk of being killed each day, many of them literally blown to pieces. They include 48 mothers each day, two every hour, and over 117 children each day, leading UNICEF to call Israel's actions a war on children. On current rates which show no sign of abating, each day, over three medics, two teachers, more than one United Nations employee, and more than one journalist will be killed, many while at work or in what appear to be targeted attacks on their family homes or where they are sheltering. The risk of famine will increase each day. Each day, an average of 629 people will be wounded, some multiple times over, as they move from place to place, desperately seeking sanctuary. Each day, over 10 Palestinian children will have one or both legs amputated, many without anaesthetic. Each day, on current rates, an average of 3,900 Palestinian homes will be damaged or destroyed, more mass graves will be dug, more cemeteries will be bulldozed and bombed and corpses violently exhumed, denying even the dead any dignity or peace. Each day, ambulances, hospitals and medics will continue to be attacked and killed. The first responders who have spent three months without international assistance trying to dig families out of the rubble with their bare hands will continue to be targeted. On current figures, one will be killed almost every second day, sometimes in attacks launched against those attending the scene to rescue the wounded. Each day, yet more desperate people will be forced to relocate from where they are sheltering or will be bombed in places where they have been told to evacuate to. Entire multi-generational families will be obliterated. And yet more Palestinian children will become WCNSF, Wounded Child, No Surviving Family, the terrible new acronym born out of Israel's genocidal assault on the Palestinian population in Gaza. There is an urgent need for provisional measures to prevent imminent irreparable prejudice to the rights and issue in this case, 
there could not be a clearer or more compelling case. In the words of the Commissioner-General of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, there must be an end to the decimation of Gaza and of its people. Medicine shortages and the lack of medical treatment, clean water and electricity are so great that large numbers of Palestinians are dying or are at imminent risk of dying preventable deaths. Cancer and other services have long shut down. Women are undergoing caesarean sections without anaesthetic in barely functioning hospitals described as scenes from a horror movie with many undergoing otherwise unnecessary hysterectomies in an attempt to save their lives. The imminent risk of death, harm and destruction that Palestinians in Gaza face today and that they risk every day during the pendency of these proceedings on any view justifies, indeed compels, the indication of provisional measures. Some might say that the very reputation of international law, its ability and willingness to bind and to protect all peoples equally, hangs in the balance. Tembeka Nukatobi of South Africa detailed the fact that Israeli officials have stated their intent to commit genocide. One percent of the Palestinian population in Gaza has been systematically decimated. And one in four Gazans have been injured since 7 October. These two elements alone are capable of evidencing Israel's genocidal intent in relation to the whole or part of the Palestinian population in Gaza. However, third, there is an extraordinary feature in this case that Israel's political leaders, military commanders, and persons holding official positions have systematically and in explicit terms declared their genocidal intent. And these statements are then repeated by soldiers on the ground in Gaza as they engage in the destruction of Palestinians and the physical infrastructure of Gaza. On 9 October, the Defense Minister, Yoav Gallant, gave a situation update to the army where he said that as Israel was imposing a complete siege on Gaza, there would be no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything would be closed because Israel is fighting human animals. Speaking to troops on the Gaza border, he instructed them that he has released all the restraints and that Gaza won't return to what it was before. We will eliminate everything. We will reach all places. Eliminate everything. Reach all places without any restraints. Many propagators of grave atrocities have protested that they were misunderstood, (coughs) that they did not mean what they said, and that their own words were taken out of context. What state would admit to a genocidal intent? Yet, the distinctive feature of this case has not been the silence as such, but the reiteration and repetition of genocidal speech 
throughout every sphere of state in Israel. We remind the court of the identity and authority of the genocidal inciters. The Prime Minister, the President, the Minister of Defense, the Minister of National Security, the Minister of Energy and Infrastructure, members of the Knesset, senior army officials, and foot soldiers. Genocidal utterances are therefore not out in the fringes. They are embodied in state policy. The intent to destroy is plainly understood by soldiers on the ground. It is also fully understood by some within the Israeli society, with the government facing criticism for allowing in any aid to Gaza on the basis that it is recanting on its promise to starve Palestinians. Any suggestion that Israeli officials did not mean what they said or were not fully understood by soldiers and civilians alike to mean what they said should be rejected by this court. The evidence of genocidal intent is not only chilling, it is also overwhelming and incontrovertible. You just heard three presenters of South Africa's case against Israel for genocide against the people of Gaza. We'll link to complete audio and video on our website, onthegroundshow.org. This is On the Ground. I'm Esther Averam. Stay with us. On the Ground is a totally listener-sponsored, supported show, and we are in need of your support. If you rely on the show, if you listen to the show, you come to look forward to what we are able to offer every week, please support us on Patreon at p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash on the ground show. And you can also give on our website through PayPal or other means if you want to send a check. All that information is there. But please, please support us. I want to thank our supporters on Patreon so much. And For those who are already supporting, if you can tell a friend who you know would love to sign up, we need the support. Patreon.com forward slash on the ground show or go to on the ground show.org. Thank you. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum, and now I'm joined by our media critic, a stranger at this point, we haven't talked to him in a long time, John Jeter, former Foreign Bureau Chief for the Washington Post, two-time 
Pulitzer finalist and author of two books, including Flat Broke in the Free Market, How Globalization Fleeced Working People. Welcome back to the show, John. It's good to be back, Esther. Long time no here. I know, but we'll fix that. (laughs) We'll fix that straight away. So we were sitting or watching in with rapt attention to the presentation by South Africa before the International Court of Justice bringing their case of genocide against Israel. So I thought that I would ask you, because, you know, you were a foreign correspondent in South Africa, and so I thought you would be a good person to talk about the significance of South Africa bringing this case of genocide to the International Court of Justice against Israel. Yeah, I I do think it's very telling that it was South Africa. You know, any country that is a member of the United Nations uh, could have brought this litigation, could have brought this action, this petition to the International Court of Justice, but it was South Africa. One of the things I learned uh, when I was in South Africa more than 20 years ago now was that during the Angolan Civil War, which was 1975 to roughly, I, I guess, 2003, that there was a famous battle there, Quito Quanawal. I actually visited there once. And it is the scene of one of the most famous battles of the Cold War. Not many Americans know it, but it is revered throughout Africa for what happened. The Marxist government of uh, Angola, at the time Marxist government, had ratcheted up this offensive against the UNITA, rebels known by the Portuguese acronym UNITA, who were supported by apartheid South Africa, which did not want a Marxist nation on its border. But they were reticent to support it with boots on the ground. But the Angolan government was winning this battle, threatening to actually decimate uh, UNITA, the rebels, and to claim permanent the Angolan state, which is right on the border of Namibia, which shares the border with South Africa. And so they made the fateful decision in late 1987, uh, the apartheid government, Pretoria, to send 9,000 South African troops to this battleground. And they just immediately started to beat the brakes off the Angolan government. Fidel Castro got wind of this. And late in 1987, he sent 30,000 troops many of them African-descended, to Angola. And they began to beat the brakes off the apartheid government troops, the South African government troops at the time. And within a matter of months, they basically, their win was so decisive, their victory was so decisive that they forced the apartheid government to withdraw uh, their troops from Angola to negotiate the liberation of Namibia, which it also controlled in addition to South Africa. And within 18 months of the famous battle of Quito Quanaval, the town in southeast uh, Angola, within 18 months, Nelson Mandela was freed from prison and the African National Congress was unbanned. And I say all this to say that Mandela himself, many, many South Africans, believed that the turning point, the inflection point in the anti-apartheid movement, there were several But the big one, right, the one that really resulted in opening the floodgates for the end of apartheid was the Battle of Quito Quanaval. And so what they're doing now in pressing this, petitioning the the International Court of Justice to uh, declare Israel's assault and blockade on Gaza a genocide, what they're doing is they're paying it forward because they Mm -hmm. realize, the South Africans realize more than anyone, really, uh, or certainly as much as anyone the importance of international solidarity to defeating settler colonialism. 
apartheid South Africa was a settler colonial state, a white minority government. And, and also, you know, I've been very critical of the African National Congress, which I don't think has delivered the goods. Uh, they didn't deliver what the Rainbow Nation was supposed to deliver uh, to the people, the black people, especially the black majority in South Africa. But this is really impressive. I think they've really redeemed themselves in a lot of ways. At least, at, at the very least, they've started to redeem themselves with this action. Yasser Arafat was a vocal critic of apartheid, and he was stick of steeds with Mandela and the African National Congress. When Mandela was freed from prison in 1990, you know, I think, I think the first two state visits he made, I think, was Cuba and Palestine. Because those were, of all the uh, international actors, which included Sweden, African-Americans, certainly, and uh, the West, uh, people across the Western nations, of all the international actors who really helped the anti-apartheid movement uh, extricate itself from white minority rule, Palestine, Palestinians were right up there along with Cuba. And so this is, you know, this is a historic moment in a lot of ways, and it kind of brings full circle this battle against settler colonialism and this axis, if you will, of settler colonialism, which you could really sort of draw an axis between Palestine or Gaza at this moment, South Africa, and then the Americas with the United States and Brazil. And this axis, and you're starting to see the walls, the bricks are being removed from the wall one at a time. It's a slow process, right? It's not going to happen today, but, or even tomorrow, but what we see with this action is we see this slow collapse of this wall of settler colonialism. And South Africa, I think, very nobly, uh, very aptly is playing a pivotal role. I think that you touching on South Africa's experience with being a settler colonial state is really key because during this whole like horrific <laughs> last three months, um, there was a scholar who I, I listened to an interview with a scholar who talked about how there's a group at the UN that is made up of only settler colonial states. <laughs> I did not know that. Yeah. And the person who brought it up was actually the, the UN official who resigned. Oh, uh, McIver. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. And, it reminds me that, okay, when you consider in this group, the United States, you know, South Africa, you know, probably Israel, Australia, New Zealand, <laughs> right. and right. how it's the only group that's not geographical. Mm, it just right. kind of spreads right. throughout the world in right. terms of, of settler colonialism. Like, and, like a cancer that metastasizes, yeah. right. Yeah. And so when you think about the distinguishing features of these states is, it's the violence. Yes. It's the extreme violence and yes. the liquidation and the disposing of people, the indigenous populations in the case of the United States, in addition to the indigenous population, the uh, enslaved Africans and the disposability of people, you know, on the same show, we're going to talk about the, historic case that we we witnessed this week uh, in Annapolis, Maryland, where the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition was able to have their case heard before the Maryland Supreme Court. And this is about whether a acknowledged, it wasn't always acknowledged, but now right. acknowledged burial ground, former cemetery, uh, holding holding the remains of, of this particular plot, holding the remains of 200 
Afro-descendant people, not all of them necessarily enslaved at this particular site, whether the a housing agency in Maryland, just local, supposed to be providing affordable housing, whether they can sell this plot uh, to a developer <laughs> or not, you know, and it was just very important because it just provides this link toward how this settler colony, the U.S., has treated the enslaved, the descendants of the enslaved in life and in death, and the desecration of burial grounds all around the country. And we have this important historic case happening right here in our backyard, right in the suburb of Washington, D.C. I I think that's so important, too. My uh, colleague, Denise Young, has done a lot of work, a lot of research on the Bethesda uh, African Cemetery Coalition and that graveyard. One of the things that she discovered was that that graveyard was used to bury African sex workers. One thing many people don't understand is that the the the, the plantation owners at that time exhausted the soil, and in a lot of cases they didn't have enough work for their slaves, so they had to find other uses for them. And there was actually a prostitution ring run out of. Uh, Montgomery County, I imagine at that time. And these child sex workers were basically uh, leased out, uh, almost like a Jeffrey Epstein, you know, 1.0, I guess, uh, 200 years ago where these young women and they died, many of them young because of the abuse. Some of these young girls were indeed trafficked, right? Right, But uh, they were also made to to reproduce more enslaved people. more enslaved, that's right. Okay, so, you know, you had uh, children who were really too young for their bodies to bear uh, children. They should not have been, you know, impregnated and, you know, made to be, you know, breeders. But this whole area, Maryland, Virginia, after the importation of more enslaved people was outlawed, you know, in the early 1800s, this area in particular became like an area of, I don't know if you call it a, like breeding farms, you know, (laughs) where basically black women, black girls were used to produce more slaves so that they would be, it was very lucrative and to, to basically sell people's people's children to the deep South where they were still cultivating cotton, whatever other crops down there where enslavement was still very profitable. So, you know, it was that in addition to the trafficking you had talked about. Yeah. I mean, it really is monstrous. The things that are done that were done and are done in the name of settler colonialism and the Orientalism, if I can uh, use the frame coined by scholar Edward Said to describe the efforts to qualify the terrorism of the settler state that dates back to Napoleon, who sent in all these writers and scientists and engineers to describe the racialized subjects, the racialized Egyptian Egyptians when they when the mm. French took over. This is why we see the New York Times writing this absurd story. Uh, now, do I know that the Palestinians? did or did not sexually assault women on October 7th. I have no idea. But I know that the New York Times story wasn't intended to to prove one way or another. It was intended to racialize, to demonize Palestinian men. I, I can't imagine that they would sexually assault women during a running gun battle. But according to the New York Times, that's what's happened. That's what happened because they're trying to inflame popular opinion. And, and this is going to backfire on them, right? Because at a certain point, people are going to believe their lying eyes. 
Uh, and we can see, of course, that the Palestinians are indeed the victims here, not the Israelis. This is not a religious war. That you know, the Palestinians don't hate Jews; they hate Zionists, and that's a very mm. different thing. But I want to make this point too to connect the dots, right? So you have the rape of these women uh, and these young women who are enslaved women, trafficking of this, these women. You've got Israel and this genocide, and one of the things they're doing is they're bombing all the infrastructure, hospitals refugee camp. That is very familiar to South Africans and Africans on the whole, because that's what Ian Smith, the last ruler of Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, he did. He bombed refugee camps. And of course, Africans were, yes, that is a violation of international law. That's a genocidal act. You don't bomb refugee camps. And Ian Smith did this with impunity. Yeah, and I I think that the, the, the role of women and girls is really key to this when you think about how the settler colonial project started here in this hemisphere. And this is where all those acts of atrocities that we we discussed, this is where it started. And then when you really think about how women and girls are being treated and the, the reproduction of Palestinians is being uh, attacked in terms of pregnant women being put in precarious situations, many of them killed or dying in birth or being killed before they have a chance to get birth, newborn babies being killed. So you see the whole structure of settler colonialism, whether it's the liquidation of Native Americans here or the attempted liquidation of the Palestinian population over so many decades it's always focused on wiping people out so that they don't exist, so that you can establish new facts on the ground. As That's right. Say. That's right. And somebody even had the nerve to, to put an advertisement on about new yes. waterfront properties I on the Mediterranean, that. you know. But I thought about one other point that I wanted to bring up with you. And there's this question of Israel's claims of innocence and victimhood that no doubt they're going to make you know at the ICJ and I thought about it in connection to this case that we covered on the show last week we covered the acquittal of this black cop in Prince George's County Maryland who murdered a man named William Green and one of the protesters at the rally said that well just remember that a monster walks among us. She was talking about the acquittal of this police officer and how he had also murdered two or three other people. And that's how she looked at it, that, you know, this is just another person acquitted and a monster is walking among us. So I thought about this in relationship to Israel because for decades now, the U.S. has aided and abetted you know, Israel and its ongoing genocide of Palestinian people. It's been the vote at the UN always vetoing these resolutions, condemning the expansion of settlements, the ongoing genocide. And now we're in a situation where Israel is the monster and it's obvious that the U.S. can't control it. It will always give you the U.S. the backhand and say, hey, thank you for the money, but you don't control us. <laughs> and they've yeah. said that repeatedly through the decades, That's and right. they're saying it now. That's right. And just like we created a monster in uh, Chile, in Pinochet, That's or right. any of the other fascist regimes that we've ex- supported around the world. And as we looked at the escalation in the 
the violence with the U.S. and the U.K. attacking the Houthis. And then we heard about an explosion or bombing at the U.S. in Iraq. I mean, we could be heading into World War III, as we've talked about on this show before. And Israel, the monster we've created, is happy to lead us into this chaos. No, it's no doubt about it. I mean, I think we need to come to terms with the fact that white settler colonialism is a terrorist ideology. It's based on the dispossession, particularly of racialized people. And I think that's what we need to come to terms with. I mean, uh, Iraq wants us to leave. The parliament has voted, I believe, three times now. Right. Ordering us, to leave, and we won't leave. We're, we're like the the house guests who just won't go home. And mm-hmm. yet, it's so important for us to portray ourselves as, as this sort of beacon of light and democracy. And we're anything but. I mean, we're you know. I think as at this moment, uh, Joe Biden is deciding whether or not to steal. I believe something on the order of three hundred billion dollars from Russia that it had deposited in uh, in Western banks. And Joe Biden is trying to decide whether or not he should steal that. Right. And so this blowback is happening. Uh, how fast it will happen. I think a lot of what happens in court will determine that a lot of what's happening over the next few weeks will determine how fast the collapse comes and the end of settler colonialism comes. But it's on its way. As as uh, Aaron Dottie Roy says, uh, a new day is on its way. We can even hear it breathing when we're in our quiet moments. So, yeah, this is uh, this is a historic moment that we're we're living through right now. So that's a great point to leave this conversation on. Uh, Thank you for joining me today, John. Thank you for having me, Esther. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. While descendants and activists fighting to save the historic Moses African Cemetery in Bethesda, Maryland, got their day before Maryland's Supreme Court on Monday, January 8th. I was there, and this is my report. For members of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition, January 8th, 2024 marked an important milestone in their eight-year battle to have sites in Bethesda, Maryland recognized as former burial grounds or cemeteries for Africans and African descendants who lived in communities along what is now River Road in Montgomery County. I traveled with members of the coalition on a bus to the courthouse in Annapolis, Maryland, and spoke to Coalition President Marsha Coleman Adebayo. Give the listeners some sense of what you're feeling today going into the hearing today. Well, our ancestors were not allowed to go into this building in their lifetime. And it is remarkable that despite everything Montgomery County has attempted to do, and in fact just the school system throughout the United States, to erase the history of our ancestors, their struggles, their challenges of just being considered human. Now their descendants, many of whom, I mean, we didn't know a lot of our ancestors because they died at such early ages. But now here we are going into the Supreme Court to represent our ancestors and to plead their case before this court. 
we are the first descendant group to make it as far as the state Supreme Court. And so this has been an amazing challenge that's lasted eight years now. We see this as one of so many other parts of our struggle because obviously we're in the street and we're fighting and we're meeting politicians and business, you know, in the, in the private sector where they're at. And we also we're in the court and we're also on the air, WPFW. And so we're, we're, our, our struggle is multifaceted. Right. And so we're not approaching the struggle from one angle or another angle. But it is noteworthy that we are now at the Supreme Court and we will continue to struggle. And I think it's, it's remarkable that we've been able to last for eight years. I think that that's a part of the strength and the power of our ancestors who still remain determined to have their voices heard. The court heard arguments about one site known as Westwood Towers and whether the owner of the property, the County Housing Opportunities Commission or HOC, can sell it to a developer, even though the commission acknowledges now, even though for years it denied it, that the property parking lot covers what is a cemetery holding the remains of about 200 people. Attorneys for the commission, Frederick Douglas and Curtis Boykin, argued in favor of affirming an appellate court decision that said HOC could sell the property without court approval. The coalition's attorneys, Steve Lieberman and co-counsels Jenny Colgate, Kristen Logan, and Jennifer Acona Semko, have argued that the state law requires a court order and consultation with descendants of those in a cemetery before the sale of property containing a burial site. Some justices express skepticism of the arguments of arguments that the state's law should not apply to the Moses Cemetery. After the hearing at a press conference, which began with drumming and libations for the ancestors, attorney Lieberman spoke with confidence that the coalition had made a good argument to prevent sale of the property. Seven justices of the highest court in Maryland are really wrestling with a very difficult issue. And the issue is, how does our society treat the most powerless among us? Fortunately, we have 200 years of good history in Maryland law about the powers of courts to remedy equitable problems. And today, several of the justices of the court forced HOC's lawyers to make critical concessions about this case, critical concessions that even if the court decides that this statute doesn't impose a mandatory duty on HOC to go to court before it sells the property, we have the right to go into court to seek injunctive relief to block the sale. We have the right to go into court and ask HSC to account for the fact that it's allowed people to park on top of 200 human beings for the last five years. So that's really important. How the court's going to decide the, the issues of the interpretation of the statutes, we're going to have to wait to see what the court says. But the concessions the court made, HOC make, were stunning. And something else that, w- that really struck me today, HOC was essentially saying for most of its argument, it's not our fault. Somebody else did this 60 years ago. But you know what? They're a government agency. 
they have the obligation to act in the public interest. And how, in what world can it be right that a government agency allows people to park on top of other human beings? That's just not right. Why doesn't HOC do the right thing and come to us and say, what do the descendants of the people buried there want? What does the River Road community want? What do you want to happen to your ancestors? Do you want a museum? Do you want the cemetery restored? Do you want the parking lot removed? What is it you want? Because we know that what we're doing is wrong. So the question for all of you is, how do you exert maximum pressure on this government agency to do the right thing? Also during the press conference, it was announced that Westwood Towers, which is on the property in question, experienced a fire on January 4th, just two days before this historic hearing. And that fire caused the building to be evacuated and condemned. Meanwhile, those interested in whether the property can be sold or not will be waiting on a decision from the Supreme Court. I spoke to Harvey Matthews, who was born and raised in the River Road community at the beginning of this fight to recognize and save these burial grounds. He was instrumental in refuting claims by county officials that no African-American cemetery or burial grounds ever existed. And that's because as a child, he played in the cemetery and later witnessed its destruction. I am a member of the Macedonian Baptist Church there on River Road, 5119 River Road in Bethesda. I've been a member for 51 years there at the church. And I have plenty of relatives that have died and also there. Uh, and these folks don't have anyone to speak for them. Someone has to speak. And I feel, though, that I no one any more better qualified to speak than myself. Mm-hmm. I've been a resident on the Elm River, born and raised there. Mm-hmm. I was born and raised there on the Elm River. And mm-hmm. this struggle that we're having with HOC, uh, it's a mighty struggle, but I know good faith and God will see that we reveal and he will be the author and the finish of this thing. Mm-hmm. But What was your reaction to the hearing the uh, arguments today? Personally, I was satisfied to a, to a degree. I wasn't totally satisfied because I feel though we're going on the same old thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And I've been on this mission for eight years. Mm-hmm. And I figure it should have been involved a long time ago. If, okay. if, if the county executive and those people have got together with the church and the, and the descendants of the relatives that are buried there and had one little powwow, I think we could have resolved these issues right. four or five years ago. And Harvey Matthews of the Bethesda African Cemetery Coalition will have the last word on today's show. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. You can work with us, support us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. If you like the show, let us know by liking us on Facebook or X Twitter or supporting us on patreon.com forward slash onthegroundshow. You can also write us at contact at onthegroundshow.org and I'll link to every show on my Instagram page, which is Esther underscore Averum, spelled I-V like Victor, E-R-E-M like Mary. The National March on Washington for Gaza is January 13th, 1 p.m. on the National Mall. 
You can follow Continuing Actions for Gaza at shutitdownforpalestine.org and at answercoalition.org. Our podcast is On the Ground with Esther Averam on all your podcast platforms. And our show theme is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace. Thank <laughs> you.